Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. Plush Care accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hello and welcome to My Favourite Work of Art with me, Dr. Laura Jane Foley. Each week, I'm joined in the studio by a guest who tells me all about an artwork that means something to them. Today, my guest is Alan Clayton, one of the most exciting and sought-after tenors of his generation. Educated at St John's College Cambridge and the Royal Academy of Music in London, Alan was a BBC New Generation artist from 2007 to 2009. He is an associate of the Royal Academy of Music and his many awards include the Queen's Commendation for Excellence, the Watson Stage Award for Excellence in Opera and the Royal Philharmonic Society Singer Award. Alan has appeared at leading opera houses and concert venues around the world, and in 2017 he played the lead role in Brett Dean's Hamlet, which had its world premiere at Glyndebourne. I'm delighted he's joining me today. Welcome, Alan. Thank you very much. So tell me, what is your favourite work of art? It is uh, The Garden of Earthly Delights. Uh, I'm glad that you put the title in front of me. Uh, by Hieronymus Bosch, which is housed in the Museo del Prado in uh, Madrid. Now, it's a, a magnificent painting. It's huge. Mm. Um, d- tell us a little bit more about it. Why have you chosen this painting? I was in Madrid doing an opera a couple of years ago, uh, doing uh, Alcina by Handel, and um, I was double cast with, a, with a, a mate of mine, Anthony Gregory, another great British tenor, and we were so we had a lot of time to, to ourselves, and there was a lot of, lot of space between the, the performance dates. So I ended up doing a bit of exploring, uh, as well as the Irish pubs of, of Madrid. I also went to uh, to, the, to the museums, and, and this I spent probably um, about an hour just standing in front of this painting. Because it uh, is so intricate. Oh, I mean, it's, it's incredible. It's nearly 13 foot wide, I think 7 foot high. It's got so much going on. I mean, can you tell us a little bit for the listeners, can you tell us a little bit about the painting, what it looks like? Well, it's, it's, like, a, it's like a sort of glamorous dartboard. It's, <laughs> uh, it, it closes to, to, to sort of form quite a dull, deliberately dull exterior with a painting of the world. Uh, I think on the third or fourth day of, of creation with a little tiny little god figure in the top left-hand corner. And then you open it up and it's sort of suddenly it's bright colours and it's a triptych, so it's three, uh, three wooden boards um, uh, pro- sort of um, portraying the progression of humanity from the Garden of Eden uh, and the left-hand panel. The central panel uh, deals mainly with, with lust and uh, the sins of the world, uh, lots of gallivanting naked people. And the right, which is my favourite, the, the, right, the right panel is, is, is hell and it's all manner of hell it really is well it's interesting you say the last panel is is your interesting one because of course that's one in which the musical instruments lie exactly yeah (laughs) the musician's hell as it's otherwise known um 
I did wonder why they were put there, though. I did think that was interesting that he'd chosen to put them in hell. But also, I uh, noticed that um, there is a rather large loot that is, uh, in, it has sort of landed on a naked man mm. beneath him, uh, beneath the loot. And on his bottom is some uh, notation. And I, I read a few years ago that uh, a young music student had decided to transcribe this <laughs> notation. Really? Into, I didn't know yeah, this. Yeah, into, into, into modern notation and, and put this piece of music online for everyone to listen to. All right, I'm going out, straight out of here and <laughs> putting that into the internet and, and uh, seeing what comes up. I didn't know that. would be yeah. my encore at the next Wigmore Hall gig. For sure. um, but I, I mean, it's, why, why do you think he's put music in hell? I mean, surely it should be in paradise, shouldn't it? I think it's a nod to secular music, uh, which, you know, the time this painting, late 15th century, um, they think probably 1494 or something like that, it was done... Um, uh, you know, big battle between church and, and state and, 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 well, secular and, and religious. And this, I think this is seen as a, I think probably the lute being uh, being being there as a, as a signal of secular music rather than sacred, which might, I don't know, you might, might have been an organ or something, you know. Again, it's quite interesting at the bottom right-hand corner, there's a, there's a pig dressed in a nun's veil. So, you've, you know, it's quite... It doesn't just. It doesn't just sort of. It's not uh, uh, puritan in that sense. Mm. I mean, it, you can read it obviously sequential, but I, I wonder as well if there's another reading of it as being that the central panel is the is you know sort of the, the one you look at, the one you sort of spend most time mm. looking at, and then it's the two ways, isn't it? The the good and the bad. Which way are you going to go? Mm. Um, but I think it? in the central panel also are Adam and Eve, so that they are there. They're the only clothed figures in the entire painting, and they're hidden, at, I think, at the bottom right in a tiny little corner. Uh, so the sense being that they've been expelled from the left-hand panel, uh, which is paradise. Mm. So you know, they're sort of viewing the, the folly of humanity you know, mm. as it gallivants, you know, literally gallivants around on, on cockerels and giant squid and... I mean, it's just, it's such a fantastical painting. And, you know, the other reason I love it is because it it was painted in 1490-something, or you know, around that time. And yet it could be, it could be a Dali painting. Absolutely. You know? I mean, it's, I mean, it's proto-sea realist, really? isn't it? I mean, especially seeing it in Madrid, it was so bizarre, you know, walking around the museum and suddenly being struck by this thing. And it's it's the same same thing as when I first heard Steve Reich and James McMillan people like that. I didn't know musically. I was like, hang on, what, what century is this from? You know, these sort of weird ostinati and, and, and these sort of repeating patterns that didn't make sense to me in a modern context mm. or, or a classical context. So that was the first time you'd come across this painting in, in the museum? I'd seen, I think, in Bruges, the film predates this, and that contains, if it's not Bosch, it's, I, think it might, I think it is a Bosch painting it housed in, in uh, the city of Bruges. And In Bruges is one of my favourite films, and, and it was a discussion of that. So I was aware of the painting. I was aware, of, of, of course, of him and uh, of his style. And I knew there were these sort of fantastical paintings, but I'd never seen it in person mm. um, or, or in its entirety on, online or anything like that. So to see it in person up close and to spend time just sort of gazing at it was was amazing. Mm. Um, you talk about the, the sense of uh, sin, and uh, I mean, it has got a, a very strong sense of morality in, uh, through, in the triptych. Um, have you got a religious background? I do have a religious background. I'm not. I'm not religious in the slightest. Um, but I was raised uh, a C of E, and I sang as a chorister in cathedral, and then as a choral scholar at university. So, you know, I've, I've probably said more more prayers than than most most people. You know, who aren't religious. Um, but it's, so it's it's strange, sort of coming coming from that, but not a Catholic background, but but even an Anglican background, coming from that knowledge of the church and of its its portrayal of sin, and then to see it in in 
uh, not in a parody, but in in, a, in an artistic representation is is fascinating. Mm. And when you were at school, were you interested in art? I mean, obviously, you must have been hugely interested in music. Um, I mean, when I was at school, I think we had to make a choice between at GCSEs. I think we had to make a choice between art and music. Huh. Did you have a similar? Yeah, I did. I, I was. I think. I managed to bully them into letting me do both, but I had to drop Latin, which I regretted because I wasn't very good at it, but I thought it would help me in later life. Mm. And uh, I remember my mum and dad, I remember sitting on my bed and my mum and dad trying to convince me that I should take Latin over art, and I'm so pleased I didn't. And mm. I think they are as well. It was, a, it was the right decision. And, and so, you know, I expanded my world so much. I remember doing lots of work based on Matisse and, and a lot of the French um, painters of that era. And then at A-level stage, I was only allowed to do music or art, which was a real shame, you know, mm. so so obviously the music won. Mm. Yeah, well, I think we're all very glad that the music sure <laughs> did <that>. win. <laughs> um, but can you remember going to galleries growing up? Or did you come from a, an artistic or a musical background, a family? Neither, no. Um, my mum and dad were... Um, uh, dad was in the RAF, my mum was a civil servant, and um, both both loved coming to see me do gigs and... and um, uh, you know, were, were huge supporters of music and stuff. And when I took an interest in art, they were both supportive of that as well. I remember going to the, the Tate and St Ives on, on our family holiday because it was around the time I was 15 or 16 and, and sort of doing GCSEs. And, and um, yeah, my, my dad sat outside with an ice cream and my mum came around and looked at some Rothko with me. Um, so, no, not, not, not particularly from that background, which has always been exciting because it means I've got more to explore you know, at the grand old age of 37 or whatever I am now. So. <laughs> and do you, uh, are you an artist? Do you actually create any work now? Or? I, uh, I mean, I create electronic music at home. Um, uh, I have a bunch of keyboards and synthesizers and stuff like that, and I just do it for my own amusement. Um, I also, I do have a sketchbook and charcoal and, and um, things like that. I haven't done it for a while because... I'm worried it's frighteningly pretentious, but um, oh no! But and I do. It's interesting you should mention that because, of course, as an opera singer, uh, that's one of the criticisms you must hear all the time about the opera world. Mm. And the same is true as art, as you've just said, is is incredibly pretentious. How do you answer that question? How do you uh, defend, in a sense, uh, opera? How did you defend art? How because you know you're not from that kind of background, mm. uh, sort of rarefied pretentious background. So how do you defend? How do you say this is relevant? This is important. It's not pretentious. Um, I mean, I went to the, the Royal Opera House last night to see the, um, I think, the third show of George Benjamin's new opera, um, Lessons in Love and Violence. And the buzz in the foyer beforehand and, and afterwards in the pub, and there wasn't a hint of pretension. There were a hell of a lot of young people there enjoying the, the music, responding to it, responding to to its um, immediacy. And uh, the same is very much true of Hamlet last year. Um, you know, to do a, a work that's a work like that that's well-known, in its theatre form uh, and then to transfer it to the opera stage I think proves that you can do that very easily because people don't have the same problems regarding theatre you know because it isn't the sort of heightened um, or uh, I don't mean heightened art form in the sense that it's it's rarefied but you can watch a piece of theatre and imagine yourself to be in a room with people talking the problem with with opera is that it's a representation of real life uh, the same with art and all it takes is a, a suspension of, of disbelief or belief whichever and to throw yourself at it. Mm. How? What do you think we can do to encourage more people into that world, to bring them in? I re- well, I read an interesting uh, interview with Alan Opie, who's a wonderful English baritone, uh, and I think in the, the Guardian a few weeks ago, and, and he was saying, for those who remember the glory days of opera with, with sort of, you know, full audience and stuff, it wasn't true. You know, he remembers going on tour with the ENO in the, in the 70s and being in Liverpool with 12 people in the, in the audience, you know. So it's not a problem that's new. It's a problem of the art, you know, the art form is rooted in tradition. 
Um, and some of that tradition is very unhelpful. Um, things like concert wear, you know, people wearing white tie, you're instantly disengaging from the audience. You're instantly wearing something that you don't see except at a, a, a sort of prestigious function. Mm. So there are, there are steps like that that could be taken. Um, I think the outreach work that this country does particularly is amazing. And I'm very proud always to be a Brit in Europe and to, to hear, you know, fellow Europeans saying what amazing education and outreach work uh, orchestras and, and opera houses here do. Um, especially, you know, in places like London, you've got Opera Holland Park and, and in Leeds, you've got Opera North, um, Scottish Opera and Welsh Opera. They all do great work. Glyndebourne does does an opera every other year for, for youth in the community and stuff. So it's it's everyone's doing what they can. It's just got, I think it's always going to have that this sort of weird reputation, to be honest. Mm. Um, can you talk a little bit more about uh, your role as Hamlet? Mm. It was, uh, yeah, uh, a commission from Glyndebourne, uh, and they approached, I think it was Vladimir Yorovsky and David Picard, the uh, ex-executive um, director of Glyndebourne, um, particularly approached Brett um, and Vladimir Yorovsky being the ex-head of music at Glyndebourne. And... Um, it was over sort of three or four years before the project began that I was approached and said, would you like to do this? I said, of course I would. And I'd, I'd hap- I would happened to have met Brett the, the summer before in uh, Slovenia, of all places. We did a festival together and, and just got on and, and um, the first time I met him actually gave me a tin of beer. So we were soulmates for life. <laughs> and, um, and yeah, I met him in Melbourne. I was over in Melbourne doing the festival there. Uh, with the Aurora Orchestra, and then we uh, we hit it off, and he 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 wrote the, the piece. I mean, I sort of I came, you know, like like all these things, you mm. come to it very late in the process. We were lucky; we had a couple of workshops in the year beforehand, so there was an input in that sense. And he was always interested and willing to know what the cast members thought about things. Um, I remember having a conversation with him that I was worried that the music I'd done in the workshops was was um, leaning slightly towards the sort of cynical, harder edge of Hamlet and that there needed to be this sort of central moment of calm and stillness of reflection, which eventually came about in the To Be or Not To Be aria, um, which with the sort of beautifully high-lying strings and really ethereal music and, and really what it is to, to think about humanity and mm. about mortality. And that, I think, was essential for the character because on either side of it, you've got death, you've got you know, revenge, you've got all this sort of hard emotions. So, mm. yeah. And that sense of tranquility, is that what you feel when you're in front of an artwork? Uh, often, yeah. Um, I mean, just staring at, I mean, talking about Mark Rothko, you, you can endlessly stare into those those paintings and, and um, find what you like in it. I mean, it's in, the, in the same way that, um, I don't know, something like 20th century music like Steve Reich, the sort of, uh, the minimalist composers, it, it, the minimalist artists are exactly the same. You can find meaning in it one way or t'other and, and you know artists and composers themselves will tell you that um, that tranquility isn't to be told or, or or directed towards it's to be found in the viewer or the or the listener mm. and I suppose it's one of the benefits of having the career that you do in that you travel so widely I mean you're talking about being Slovenia we're talking about being Madrid you get the chance to view all these wonderful artworks in museums and galleries all around the world. Yeah, I'm very, yeah, it's very lucky. It's, it's one of the real, real plus points of the thing. I'm, I'm not the best person at going out when I'm abroad because I, you know, I sort of like to sit in my little hole and and um, feel sorry for myself. But the, you're right. It's, it's one of the really great things is to see these cities, to meet some of the people, and to well, to meet the people, but also to sort of see these incredible artworks that are housed all around the place. It's amazing. Thanks so much for coming in, Alan. Thanks so much for having me. Been brilliant. Today, we were talking about the Garden of Earthly Delights, a triptych oil painting on oak panel by the Dutch painter Hieronymus Bosch. Little is known of Bosch's life, but it is believed he was born around 1450 and died in 1516 in his mid-sixties. 
Attribution of his paintings is difficult, and only 25 paintings are confidently attributed to Bosch. The Garden of Earthly Delights dates from between 1490 and 1510, and is perhaps his most famous work. The triptych is complex and enigmatic, and explores the concept of Christian sin from the Garden of Eden in the first panel to hell in the final panel. The triptych has been housed in the Prado Museum in Madrid since 1939. If you would like to see the artwork we were discussing this week or carry on the conversation further, you can find me on Twitter at Laura Jane Foley. And if you want to discuss the show, please use the hashtag MyFavoriteWorkOfArt. The show was recorded at Wisebudder in London and was edited by Liam Clayton. The title music is Blue from Colours by Dimitri Scarlatto. I hope you'll be able to join me next time. Goodbye. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus. Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.